Robinson, back for the captain, Tyler Adams. Austin McKay, Des making a big run. It's been for him. Des is snuck in behind. Des in the middle. Pulisic scores. Might have paid the price, but the U.S. takes the lead. That was the moment the USA's star forward, Christian Pulisic, scored the crucial goal in Tuesday's World Cup match against Iran, a game that was played out amid mounting international tensions over the Islamic Republic's harsh crackdown against internal dissent. In the days leading up to the match, the Iranian team showed its solidarity with the protesters by refusing to sing the country's national anthem, a symbolic statement that prompted the regime to threaten team members that their family members would be imprisoned and tortured if they did not get in line. Jason Rosarian is a global opinion columnist for the Washington Post, who was arrested and held for more than a year in an Iranian prison on bogus charges of espionage. Before the match, Rosarian wrote a column for the Post saying that while he has always in the past rooted for the United States in world soccer matches, this time he was actually hoping for Iran to win and move on to the next round in order to bring more global attention to the brutal policies of the Iranian government. We'll talk to him about the World Cup, the future of the protests, and his experience as a journalist imprisoned by the Iranian regime on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a Senior Counsel at States United. So a lot of really serious uh, issues we need to discuss on this episode. But I just thought I'd start out by saying, look, I am not a soccer fan i could barely understand the rules of the game as was exemplified when i was watching it yesterday but obviously all the attention that this game got and all the attention the protests are getting prompted me to want to watch it yesterday i did i got a lot of questions about it and it so happens that we've got a soccer expert here our own producer Mark Seaman, who was a college soccer player himself and also a licensed FIFA referee. So, Mark, I know you, uh, I was going to say, welcome to Skullduggery. You're on every Skullduggery episode, (laughs) editing it, putting it together. But I think this is the first time we've actually brought you into the discussion. I've snuck on a couple times. I, I get have. in there. I get in okay. there subliminally, but like the World <laughs> Cup, I make an appearance every four right. years. All right, so all right. I'm, I'm happy all to right. be back. What did you make of the match? And I've got a couple of questions about the rules of the game, which I do not understand. Of course. So this obviously was a very, very important match for the U.S. men's national team. This having been the return of the team, they missed the last World Cup. So a lot of pressure here with this young squad. And they are very young. They're one of the youngest teams in the World Cup this go-round. They're full of energy, but the experience is lacking a little bit. So they found themselves in a position with the third match in the group stage that if they win, they get in. Not to mention everything that's going on in Iran. But the game itself was fantastic. I enjoyed it a lot. 
Iran was playing for a tie. So they sat back, played defense most of the game in order to just let the U.S. burn themselves out in hopes they can just get a draw. The U.S. didn't uh, allow that to happen. Christian Pulisic, the team's most recognizable player, was able to score a goal and give them a 1-0 victory, which was awesome, but also damaged his uh, pelvic region in the in the scoring of the goal. So, so I've got one quick question. I was yeah. watching with my son, and one of the players on the U.S. side gets called for offsides, and my son and I looked at each other. We had no idea what that means in this context. I understand offsides in football, our football, of course, but how can you be offsides in a game where everybody's running around all over the field anyway? Sure. So look, the field is pretty large. It's the size of a football field. I mean, the dimensions can change, but it's a very big field. And the reason why the offside rule was created was to prevent people from cherry picking, right? Just throwing guys up top all the way down by the goal they're trying to score on and just leave them there. And then players just kicking long balls all the way down the field. So it keeps the game more compact and it disallows the game to lose its flow, right? So offside, and a lot of people say offsides, but you can only offend one side. So it's the offside rule. And how it works is, I'll just put this part out there first. You can never be offside if you're on the side of the field that you're defending. So offside comes into effect when a pass is played, when the ball is kicked forward to a player who has less than two of the opposing players between them and the goal they're trying to score on, okay? So if there's only one defender or no defenders between the attacker, the person receiving the pass, and the opposite goal at the moment of a pass, then that player is in an offside position. Now, there are some exceptions here. You cannot be offside on a corner kick, on a throw-in, and you cannot be offside on a goal kick. Now, it gets very, very tricky because this is a game of inches like most sports, where a knuckle will keep a player on or off sides, a shoe, an elbow, a shoulder. And they have technology now that helps out a lot with this. And there's some debate about it because it does slow down the game and, and how offside is called these days. But there is a specific referee, a sideline referee that runs up and down the field on only one half of the field. And his primary job, primary job is to watch for offside. And so it's uh, if you're watching in real time as a non-soccer fan, it's hard, Mike. I get it. <laughs> that yeah. was soccer law school. Yeah. <laughs> Did that help um, at all? I don't know if that helped. I, I, yeah, I, I think um, we're going to have to get a transcript of this. I'm going to have to study <laughs> sure. it and bone up for the next batch. Last question for you, Mark. Uh, yeah. Does the USA have a shot here? I mean, we move to the next round, but what happens from here? Coming into this World Cup, U.S. men's national team been struggling quite a bit losing almost every game heading into this World Cup. So things weren't looking good. But what's fun about the World Cup is anything is possible. It's all about matchups. And we've seen a lot of upsets in this World Cup. Argentina losing to Saudi Arabia, Japan beating Germany, Tunisia today at, at the time of this recording just beat France. Huge upsets in this World Cup. So to say U.S. does not have a chance would be silly, but they are playing the winner of Group A, which is the Netherlands. Another very young team, but is a dark horse in this tournament. It's going to be tough, but I feel I wouldn't be surprised if the U.S. can pull it off. 
So from between now and Saturday, as one uh, Twitter wag put it, we're going to be calling Dutch ovens freedom ovens, um, and then we can we can we can return to uh, we can return to Dutch oven on Sunday. Yeah, ex- <laughs> exactly. Right. We've got we've got serious stuff to talk about. As All right, well thank you. See everybody in four years. Take care. Yeah. <laughs> Um, uh, by the way, uh, yeah. I, I think Mike, uh, three quarters of the world considers what we just talked about serious, serious stuff. Yes, Even if I you're know. dismissive of soccer, I, no, you know? no, 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 no. I just they also I, consider it football. Yeah, but. Yeah. yes, that's true. <laughs> right, right. I, I just don't understand it. That's all. But, uh, anyway, but look, the reason we're paying attention, and you know, the world was paying attention to this, aside from the game itself, was what's going on in Iran right now, which is something we haven't seen in years, maybe unprecedented since the protest began three months ago. A 22-year-old Kurdish woman, uh, Masa Amini, uh, dies in police custody after she was arrested for refusing to wear a hijab in public. That leads to all these spontaneous demonstrations. The regime cracks down. 450 people killed, including dozens of children, more than 15,000 arrested. This is pretty staggering and has raised serious questions as to whether this regime can sustain this sort of crackdown. Yeah. You know, there have been a lot of protests in Iran over the years. I can remember when we were, Mike, when we were at Newsweek and uh, our correspondent at Newsweek, Maziar Bahari, was detained uh, by the Iranian security forces and held in an avian p- prison exactly where Jason was held. Right, I remember that. He was there that. for, yeah. I think, you know, 118, 118 days. And uh, that was around the time, um, I can't remember the sequence exactly, of the sort of green revolution. They were protesting the sort of uh, heavy hand of, of the then president of Iran, Ahmadinejad. And um, it was the one of the Twitter revolutions, right? It was it was fairly early on in Twitter. It was um, it was before the Arab Spring, but not all that much before the Arab Spring. Um, and there was a tremendous amount of excitement. And we were asking some of the same questions. Could the re- regime uh, fall? And of course, the Iranians snuffed it out pretty quickly. The question is, and I'm going to be interested in hearing what Jason has to say about this, who's following this extremely closely, is there a significant difference between what's happening now and what happened then? And I think I think there is. First of all, I think these protests have already uh, gone on longer than they did back in 2009. But also, this is a, a protest that is being led by, by women um, that has really kind of rallied uh, the international community uh, behind them. And of course, geopolitics are very different right now, where you have the West uh, uniting against Iran's uh, now closest ally, Russia and the regime of, of Vladimir Putin. And I think that makes a difference. In the past, the United States was always worried about keeping the the uh, Europeans on board. The French and the Germans and others wanted to continue trading with Iran. And I think uh, that's less of an issue. So this may be the real deal, but it may also take a long time to play out. And uh, sadly, it likely means that a lot more people are going to die. Stepping back from the implications of everything that's going on in Iran itself, I think we should also point out that this is possibly, probably posing the greatest 
challenge to the Biden administration in terms of its foreign policy right now, short of what's going on in Ukraine. This is probably number two in terms of on the agenda for the Biden administration to deal with from a foreign policy perspective, not just because of the protests themselves, which are obviously an issue of great humanitarian interest, but Iran has, within the last few weeks, indicated an increased intention to engage in enrichment of nuclear fuel. It has been supplying Russia with arms and the ability of the United States to engage in any sort of diplomatic interactions with the official Iranian regime right now has slowly but surely been snuffed out over the course of the last few months. That poses an incredibly important and stressful test to the Biden administration that they're doing essentially with very little attention at this stage of the game. Right. I mean, look, it is striking that, you know, two years ago before Joe Biden you know, won the election, if you were asking people in the Biden foreign policy team what their agenda would be if elected, you know, right at the top of towards the top of the list, if not at the top of the list, would be getting restoring the Iranian nuclear deal that Trump took us out of. It's now clear that isn't going to happen. Those negotiations are all but dead. And as you mentioned, Victoria, the Iranians are showing signs of stepping up their nuclear program, bringing them closer to the point at which they might have a usable nuclear device. I remember, you know, during those last few years of the Obama administration, the concerns about an Iranian bomb was, you know, front and center when you talk to people on the on the in the national security sphere that this was something that was, you know, the Israelis seemed poised to strike unilaterally against Iran. We needed this agreement to keep the Israelis in check, but now with no no negotiations, no chance of restoring the agreement, and the Iranians acting and. <laughs> throw in Bibi Netanyahu returning to power in Israel. God, there seems to be a lot of uh, a lot of really combustible yeah, uh, two, matters there that could blow things up. Two data points, uh, which were just striking to me just reading the papers in the last few days. One is that the Iranians are enriching uranium, apparently up to 60% purity at the Fordo plant near Qom, which, which is you know, by the way, that is, that is the plant that we were most concerned about that I think the United States and the Israelis tried to sabotage. And that's the one where the Iranians, I think, felt they, you know, had the, the best chance of building more uh, bombs. And then the other thing was just John Kirby, who runs uh, strategic communications for the National Security Council in a recent interview with VOA, I think, just said flatly, you know, there's just no diplomacy going on with Iran. You know, there's, it's a total stalemate. The nuclear discussions are are completely frozen, and really there's nothing else happening. Now, there may be back-channel stuff happening, which, you know, is, is always a possibility, but it does seem like we're at a pretty dire moment right now and hard to know where it's going to go. You know, maybe this makes um, policymaking easier <laughs> for the United States because they don't have to balance the protests um, against sensitive negotiations that are taking place right now. But in a lot of other ways, it makes it feel more dangerous. 
Yeah, absolutely. And we want to discuss all of this with uh, Jason. couple of other matters, or at least one other matter, uh, we want to take note of before we get to our guest. And that is the big victory that the Justice Department just got in convicting Stuart Rhodes, the uh, head of the Oath Keepers and one of his associates of seditious conspiracy charges for the events of January 6th. It was an interesting verdict because several other of the defendants were actually acquitted on the seditious conspiracy charge, but convicted of conspiring to obstruct a official proceeding of the government, which is, by the way, the charge that they would most likely use if they end up charging Donald Trump for conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding. But, you know, I was scratching my head a little bit. You get two people convicted of seditious conspiracy, but three others acquitted. So this is a conspiracy of two people, Toria? Of course, it's possible to have a conspiracy of two people. Mike, you and I could conspire to distribute, you know, a pound of right. cocaine between the two of us if we felt like it, and we would both be convicted. Yeah, and Danny, right. but, but Danny would have had nothing to do with it. Conspiracy for a riot involving hundreds right. of people, well, right? So, so the the real issue is whether and and again, you know, there's there's no no knowing or totally understanding what the what was going on in the mind of the jury when they reached the these uh, verdicts, but it, it's unclear that the the jury may have felt that the government didn't produce enough evidence to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that those other three people who weren't convicted of seditious conspiracy had conspired to put down or destroy by force the government of the United States. That's the the sedition part of the conspiracy. And if the jury didn't feel that they had enough evidence to demonstrate that for those three other people, then they would have acquitted them of that. So I think it's just as, as simple as that. That being said, of course, the fact that it was a kind of a mixed verdict, right? And the point that you just made, Mike, about how can you only have a conspiracy of two is definitely going to kind of work its way into the kind of far right, you know, conspiracy land of these people to sort of demonstrate that there was or, or probably to argue that the government was overreaching in these charges and that January 6th really wasn't all that bad, et cetera, et cetera. So the mixed verdict is definitely shy of a complete win for the U.S. government. And then there's the question of what does this mean for Trump? Because, you know, th- this is one of the rare instances in which the government has brought seditious conspiracy charges and and has prevailed. But that's not necessarily an important precedent for future charges against Donald Trump, because if you compare the evidence that they had against Stuart Rhodes and the others to the evidence that they have against Donald Trump, uh, it's a it's a, uh, a considerable distance from yeah. this case to, uh, to to Trump. I mean, the communications that that we saw in this trial uh, between Rhodes and the others talking specifically about overturning the election and violence. And, you know, we just don't have that from Trump. Yeah. So the the thing is, is that the law regarding what is a conspiracy is incredibly well settled. The law regarding what is sedition is at least relatively clearly written. And there is a fair amount of, of law about it, where these trials, where the rubber really hits the road in these indictments is the evidence. 
And as you pointed out, Danny, the evidence for Trump is not anywhere close to what Stuart Rhodes, what the evidence against Stuart Rhodes was. So, you know, the possibility of a seditious conspiracy charge against Trump, you know, I, I can't speak to it because I haven't seen all the evidence that DOJ might possibly have. But, you know, it's it's that's a tough road to walk. On the other hand, there are a few other things that he did that that uh, the evidence does seem a little bit stronger yeah, on. Yeah. And, uh, you know, in, in classic, you know, possibly Al Capone style, they may not get him for all of the gun running and bootlegging, but they, they might end up getting him for a few documents in Mar-a-Lago. Which is a different case, but also being handled by the new special counsel, Jack Smith. Just one final beat on the evidence. I, I should point out that the January 6th committee, which goes out of business in just about a month from now, a little a month and a couple of days, uh, is vowing, uh, pledging that they will release all its evidence in addition to a report before it does. So uh, what that tells me and, is... And Mike, something that you've been calling for. Yeah, uh, release of the transcripts. Right? All of the transcripts. All of the transcripts. So let's see if they do that. If they do do what they say they're going to do, we will have tens of thousands of pages of transcripts to read, which we can dissect on Skullduggery. So Skullduggery listeners, um, fasten It'll be the marathon 1,000 hour <laughs> yeah. Skullduggery we'll read reading. We'll some do. of those depositions uh, to put it into the record. Anyway, we've got a uh, great guest to talk about a really important issue. So let's get to it. Okay, we now have with us Jason Rosarian, a global opinion columnist for the Washington Post. Jason, welcome to Skullduggery. Thanks for having me on, Mike. I appreciate it. So uh, quite an interesting time to be talking about Iran, a country you are deeply have deep experience in. But I want to start out with this interesting column you wrote the other day before the USA-Iran match, saying that while you always root for the USA in world soccer, this time you were rooting for the Iranians. Explain why. Well, for me, it was pretty simple. And I got to be honest, you know, soccer isn't my number one uh, favorite sport. If we were, we were talking about basketball or baseball, I, I would have a much harder time not rooting for the United States. But I know how important soccer is to Iranians. But more than that, at this moment, with protests raging on for about three months inside the country and, you know, a lack of real, you know, international media working inside Iran, our views into Iran are so limited. So, you know, the World Cup is is the biggest platform in the world. Billions of people are watching. It was the best opportunity to talk about what's going on inside that country. I know that sports and politics are not supposed to intermingle, but they always do, especially in, in matches uh, like U.S. versus Iran. So I thought it was a wonderful opportunity to keep a spotlight on what's happening in Iran, and we will watch as the the days go by, and uh, that that game kind of recedes into the distance, and there'll be less discussion of Iran in, in international news uh, in the days ahead, unfortunately. And yet, Jason, when after the United States did beat Iran one uh, nothing in that match, um, there were stories about Iranians and uh, protesters cheering uh, Iran's defeat and chanting America, America, which was pretty striking. What does that tell you 
about what's going on in Iran right now. Yeah, I mean, I think that, that that's a real clear indication of where public sentiment for the the government is at this point. I will say that, you know, having lived in Iran for years and, and traveled there for many years, you know, I witnessed all sorts of anti-American demonstrations in the street that were, you know, state-sponsored and state-organized. But never once did I hear anybody say anything bad about America behind closed doors. It's a very pro-U.S. Uh, society. A lot of people have relatives here. Older generation, a lot of them uh, were educated in the United States. A lot of the military was trained in the United States in, in the 60s and 70s. It's one of the few countries in the world where made in America still means something. And, you know, this was less about cheering for America's victory and more about what those people perceive as a blow to to the Islamic Republic. I watched the game with some folks who were born and raised in Iran yesterday. And although they were pretty clear that they wanted to see the Iranian team lose, they also uh, acknowledged that, you know, that's not really where their heart is. Uh, it, it's more out of spite. Let's go back to the protests, uh, if we can, for a second. As, as you mentioned, there have been uh, months of rolling protests throughout hundreds of cities in Iran at this stage of the game. The Iranian soccer team itself also seems to have engaged in a, a form of protest while they were in Qatar. Tell us about what they did and what consequences they may be facing when they go home. Well, you know, ahead of the, the first uh, match that they played uh, against the UK, uh, that they ended up losing very badly. Uh, they chose to not sing along with their national anthem. Now, to those of us uh, in the free world, that might not seem like a, a pretty, you know, a, a major protest, but to Iranians who are steeped in living under that regime and people who live in authoritarian societies know very well when athletes go and represent their country's uh, international competitions, I mean, they're there to, to, to represent the state. And, that was a very clear indication that their heart wasn't in it uh, for the Iranian government. And as you saw in uh, a couple of press conferences afterwards, uh, after the, the game against Wales, that the Iran won uh, the, the player who scored the second goal, Ramin Razayan, no relation to mine, we just happen to have the same last name. But he, um, you know, he talked about how, you know, he dedicated the goal to the suffering people of, of his homeland and was grieving with them, you know, for the losses of, of, of loved ones and, and all of the, the problems that the country is going through. So I think that it's quite clear that the players don't want to be associated with the regime. Uh, there are a lot of people within the country who, who would say, hey, look, you know, make a, a defiant stand. Well, if they made a defiant stand before the, the games, probably wouldn't have had the opportunity to go and play. And, you know, we have heard reports that that some of the, the players and their loved ones are being or were being threatened with repercussions, uh, imprisonment, torture, if uh, if the players didn't behave by the, the regime standards. There were uh, countless plainclothes agents of the Islamic Republic in Qatar at the game. You can see all over social media uh, images of people who are wearing protest movement shirts, you know, symbols, you know, woman, life, freedom, which is the the kind of slogan uh, of this movement being removed from the stadium. So it's a very, very, very 
high tension situation right now. And again, I think I'm glad we're talking about this because if people don't talk about it, the likelihood that that these players and their families will receive, you know, retribution for perceived lack of commitment to the state will increase uh, dramatically. Jason, can we just step back for a second and put these uh, World Cup events into the larger context of the protests that have been going on for quite some time now. And I mean, it's worth pointing out that, um, and I think you've written about this, this is not the first time we've seen protests in Iran. You had the Green uh, Revolution, you know, more than a decade ago, and sometimes they, they seem to fade. What What is going on now? How sustainable is it? How different is it from previous protests? And one thing in particular I want you to talk about, which I think you wrote about, which is the fact that this that, that women and girls are in the vanguard of these protests. Yeah, I mean, you know, from the day that the Islamic Republic uh, started in 1979, and then, you know, a few days later, mandatory uh, hijab was enforced on 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 women and you know sharia law became the the ordering principle of society people have been protesting it in ways large and small and that spilled out into the streets uh, multiple times over the years you you mentioned 2009 there were also protests in 1999, again, in, in 2019, big protests where at least 1,500 people were killed by the regime. And the reality is that, that people have not been very fond of, of having theocratic rule placed on them, especially people uh, who become marginalized because of the laws of that system. So first and foremost, women half the society, and then anybody who doesn't happen to be a Shia Muslim, which is, you know, 15 to 20% of the society, that's not accounting for, you know, all of the people who, who who probably consider themselves atheists or agnostics. I mean, you have at least 10% of the population is Sunni, uh, you have Christians, you have Jews, you, you know, you have a whole variety of Zoroastrians, uh, and all of these people, Baha'is, all of them are marginalized legally within Iran. It's a you know a, an apartheid uh, society. So there's a lot of reason that people will be pushing back against that. To the question of of whether it's sustainable or not, I don't think that the the Islamic Republic has any answer that will put an end to the protests, and and that makes me fearful that they will use excessive force to to try and put them down because they've done that before many times, but also it just goes to show that this this system that's because of its vast uh, resources and oil wealth has been able to pl- placate people uh, at, at various times is no longer in a position to do that. You know, it, it, it's oil revenues are, are down to, you know, a tiny fraction of what they once were. They don't have foreign currency reserves. And then you have a whole slew of other problems, like environmental ones, that that the regime has not invested any time or resources or energy into solving. This is going to be a country that doesn't have any water within a few years. And it's a country that today is more than three times larger in population than when the revolution happened in 1979. It's a, a recipe for all sorts of disasters. And the Islamic Republic has proven itself incapable of answering any of these these challenges and any of the very legitimate demands of its people. So I don't think that the protests will end. Does that mean that they're going to succeed in toppling this regime and installing a democracy? That's the part of it that remains to be seen. And I don't know. 
uh, I, I, I hope so, but, um, you know, it doesn't seem like um, it's moving in that direction right now. Jason, that's exactly where I wanted to go, because I think the bottom line, you know, for most Americans is, is there a scenario here where these protests could lead to regime change? And if so, you know, what should be the United States government's posture towards these protests. Uh, we all remember back in, I guess it was 2009, when there were protests in Iran, the Obama administration was reluctant to say too much for yeah. fear that it would look like uh, the United States was somehow behind the protests or fomenting the demonstrations. Give us your take on, you know, is there a scenario for regime change? And what should the Biden administration be doing now to support these protesters? First of all, I mean, I think that there is because we're getting closer and closer to a situation where, you know, the Islamic Republic is a failed state, right? And those can limp along for a very long time, but, you know, they have real weaknesses and can be toppled by, you know, actors internal and external. One of the things that they've been really successful at is snuffing out opposition and either imprisoning, executing, killing in extrajudicial ways, or exiling opponents to, to the regime um, for the last 43 years. So you don't have a lot of people internally who have bona fides that aren't directly connected with their relationship to the regime. And people who are uh, opposed to the regime don't want to see anybody who's connected to to the current system have any any reins on on power in the future. So that that's one complicating factor. As far as what the Biden administration can do, you know, I think that I will say this in my lifetime and I've been following US Iran relations for you know, my entire adult life. Um going back to I'd say the Clinton administration. The the public posturing of the Biden administration to me is the is the best uh, of anybody so far, and I think part of that is because they they learned a lot of lessons. You know, all of these people are, are folks who were in in the Obama administration who realized that they made mistakes in two thousand nine. The truth is, anybody who knows anything about Iran knows that, and the same goes for North Korea, and the same goes for China and Venezuela, Cuba, and a whole bunch of other countries. No matter what the United States government does, those countries are going to blame anything that happens in their societies on the United States, right? There are plenty of people who have been executed in all of those countries because they were supposedly agents of the United States, never having had anything to do with the United States. So, you know, my my recommendation and my position on this is the Biden administration should go all in in support of the protesters and figure out ways that they can actually help the situation inside Iran. The two things that I see that 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 are feasible, one is um, harnessing our technical cap capabilities to ensure that Iranians are able to stay online. That's something that the US has invested millions and millions of dollars in over the years. And, you know, they should keep investing in it and and figuring out new and innovative ways to to, to keep Iranians online, uh, because that's the, our only window into that society. Two, pave the way for Iranian dissidents to make their way to the United States uh, to help insulate you know, a, a, a civil society in, in diaspora for a day when uh, there's hopefully 
a situation where a democratic society might be able to be built inside Iran, because we don't have that right now. We have all sorts of opposition folks who uh, have been living comfortably in the West for many years, who maybe say all the right things, but don't necessarily have a, a finger on the pulse of what's going on in, inside the country, don't have a profile inside the country. So, you know, th- that's something where we can we can also benefit as the United States in sort of harvesting uh, human intelligence that we've lacked for so many years, not having had a diplomatic relation with Iran and having to rely on people who, frankly, have sketchy backgrounds. Jason, you have more authority than most people talking about Iran because of your own experience. You were the Tehran bureau chief for the Washington Post, and you were locked up, arrested, locked up, convicted in a secret court proceeding of espionage. Tell us what happened to you in Iran, inside an Iranian prison, and how you got out. Yeah. So, I mean, I was, I was, I'd been working as a correspondent there for five years when uh, my wife and I were arrested at gunpoint from our homes, handcuffed, blindfolded, thrown in the back of an unmarked van, taken to Avin prison, put immediately into interrogation, placed in solitary confinement, uh, where we were both held for for many weeks. I was in solitary for, for seven weeks. My wife was in solitary for 10 weeks. And, you know, during that time, we were subjected to all sorts of psychological torture and solitary confinement, uh, you know, is is something that people hear about, but don't really necessarily know uh, what it means. Uh, I was in a cell that was four and a half by eight and a half feet wide with lights, fluorescent lights on 24 hours a day, no furniture, no electronics, no books, no anything. I was given, you know, a, a very small amount of food through a kind of a, a slat at the bottom of the door twice a day, as if I was a dog. You know, taken out of the cell only for interrogation and and twenty minutes of fresh air, blindfolded uh, every day. So that that was that was my life for a very long time. When I came out of solitary confinement, I was placed in a in a larger cell with one other person, but still kept in isolation. All that time, the Obama administration was having secret negotiations with Iranian counterparts over my fate and the fate of several other Americans uh, and several Iranians who had been convicted in the U.S. under legitimate crimes, sanctions crimes, but you know, actual criminal activity. And ultimately, I was released in a an exchange on on the day that the U.S. and Iran implemented their nuclear deal in 2016. Jason, you you mentioned that you were released around the time of the nuclear deal. And I think in an earlier question, in answer to something that, uh, in answer to one of Mike's earlier questions, you mentioned that Iran was on the verge of being a failed state. But as your personal experience demonstrates, as well as kind of broader facts demonstrate the nation still uh, and the government is one that still has some very sharp claws. And we know uh, in recent weeks that they've announced plans to continue their plant, their uh, nuclear program and to enrich fuel to make bombs. And in addition, the government has been helping supply uh, Russia with weapons in its battles in Ukraine. In light of that, do you genuinely believe that the United States has much leverage against 
the nation and that there's really much of a hope for reform? Look, I don't think there's there's hope of reform. I mean, it's not about reform. It's about um, whether or not uh, this system will limp along in its current form, suppressing and repressing 85 million people, or if its expiration date has passed and it will be replaced by something else. I, I always put a lot of hope in the Iranian people. They're educated, they're civilized, they have a very long and rich history. And, you know, I believe that it's a country that has existed for millennia. And I I I I think it will continue to, although there are people who see it a possibility to kind of parse it up into into smaller into smaller nation states. As far as, you know, whether I expect the Islamic Republic to, you know, concede or acquiesce to American demands, probably not. They haven't done that before. But there are always other pressure points, always other sources of of leverage to be used. And one of the things that I think the U.S. has has really failed at for, you know, the entirety of its, you know, 43 years of policy towards the Islamic Republic, uh, it's been a lot of failings of imagination uh, and missing signs and opportunities. You have very few real Iran experts inside the U.S. government none uh, that have spent any significant time in Iran. You know, a handful of people have, have maybe been there in their capacities, you know, non-government capacities, working for NGOs on aid missions or whatever for a couple of days or maybe weeks, but not anybody that that has real in-country knowledge or, or experience, which is a shame because you have a population of, of Iranians living in the United States, U.S. citizens, many of whom have maintained relations with uh, with the country, who could be a real asset to to our policy towards Iran moving forward. Jason, you, at, you talked about the leverage that the United States might have, but what about leverage that Iran has? You know, you, you yourself were a pawn in, uh, in negotiations uh, between Iran and, and the United States, and the Iranians are holding essentially hostage a number of Americans right now. How, how should U.S. policymakers factor that into how they um, their their policy toward toward Iran right now. Look, I mean, you know, Iran is the country that um, has been taking foreign nationals hostage uh, more frequently and more consistently as part of its foreign policy uh, than any other country in the world since 1979, when students took the U.S. embassy in Tehran hostage and held Americans for 444 days. There have been literally dozens of other Americans held hostage, like myself, and also uh, citizens of, of a, a whole array of other nations, the UK, Canada, France, Spain, Germany, Switzerland, Austria, Australia, New Zealand, you name it. Everybody's had to deal with this. And I think two things I'll say. One, that's a sign of weakness, right? You know, countries don't need to take hostages if they if they have a strong hand. But two, if you don't come up with a, you know, a clear and consistent policy of deterrence that demonstrates to hostage takers like Iran uh, that there will be a cost to doing this, they're just going to keep doing it. So, you know, at the moment, and people ask me this all the time, I mean, you know, should should the U.S. make concessions to, to bring these Americans home? 
I say, yes, absolutely, because there's no other alternative. And I was the person who had to sit there for, for 544 days until a U.S. president decided to make some concessions. If we had a deterrent program in place, one that you know worked and not only um, made it very clear what the cost would be, we wouldn't have to be having this conversation about that. But that being said, I mean, I think uh, Iran has... Yes, it has some leverage, and the leverage is of that terrorist type that, you know, hey, we can kill these people who are under our thumbs, whether they're our own citizens or citizens of your your country. That is dangerous. That is terrifying by definition. It's also a sign of great weakness. One last quick question, uh, Jason. One thing we haven't touched on is while all this has been going on, Iran has been solidifying its relationship with Vladimir Putin's Russia, providing drones for the war in Ukraine. It seems to me that's a pretty big gamble for the Iranians uh, to be so closely associated with uh, a war that is being condemned by virtually the entire world. How do you read the this Iranian-Russian alliance right now, is it sustainable? And is it going to ultimately lead to even further isolation of the um, Islamic Republic? I don't think it will lead to any further isolation of the Islamic Republic, because I think the Islamic Republic is about as isolated as it's ever been, which is why it's made the decision to support Russia in their war against Ukraine. I think you know, they had a choice and history will look back at this as a historic mistake. Ultimately, Iranians don't have a, a good impression of Russia. They feel um, uh, they've been betrayed by Russia multiple times over the last couple of, of centuries, been invaded by Russians. They've been, you know, taken to the cleaners in, in uh, economic trade deals by the Russians. And I think anybody who's looking at this sees it as a marriage of convenience uh, and and very little more. Does it buttress them from you know future uh, attacks from from the rest of the world? Uh, maybe temporarily, but I think in the long run, uh, you know, it's a bad bet. All right, Jason, I want to thank you for joining us. I I well remember your days in captivity and attending a number of events in Washington in support of your freedom. Um, we are all grateful you finally did make it out and your voice can be heard once again. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for giving me the opportunity. I appreciate it. <laughs>